Welcome to the Paleo View. I'm Stacey Toth of PaleoParents.com. You might also know me as the broth lady or the inventor of the hashtag more vegetables than a vegetarian. I'm the co-author of several paleo cookbooks, including Eat Like a Dinosaur, Beyond Bacon, Real Like a Paleo. I like to talk about health at any size and self-love and personal acceptance. Specifically, I have a love for lifting heavy things. If you're interested in finding more out about that, you can also find me on Strong Woman Radio. And I'm Dr. Sarah Valentine of thepaleomom.com. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of The Paleo Approach and The Paleo Approach Cookbook. I'm passionate about nutrient density and the intersection of diet and lifestyle with health, which really means I just love talking about science. News and views, where Sarah and I catch up and you get to listen to our gossip. Um, the struggle is really real. (laughs) So, okay. So first of all, I just, we have a really dense show, but I got a lot of comments and questions after my back update last week. So let me just be the first to share with you all that the back treatment was extremely successful and I am more mobile than I can remember being, um, since basically the summertime and it's really super exciting. It's definitely an inflammation issue because as they were doing the treatment itself, it was going easier, which means there was less inflammation in the joints. And they told me immediately after the treatment, like, you're going to feel better after this one because we can already see an improvement. The first treatment just took away from the inflammation. It didn't get to the pain. And this one we think will get to the pain. And they were right. So within 24 hours, I was feeling so much better. And I have one more treatment left, which means that like low level of, um, of discomfort that I'm feeling right now will probably be completely dissipated after the third treatment. So that's super exciting news. When are are you going to have the green light to, uh, ease back into so lifting. yeah I've been talking with Viv about that we talked about it a little bit on Strong Women Radio I think what I'm probably going to end up doing is getting into something like yoga just to do some um, body strengthening and mobility activities and then do like a personal training thing maybe once a week just to make sure that I ease into things uh, because I have a tendency to not um, hold back <laughs> when I'm on my own. So I need to look into finding like the right path for me there, but it's, I've been thinking about it a lot and I think that's what I'd feel most comfortable with. So, um, as much as I, I would love to just like jump in and start lifting have heavy things. I've loved doing personal training. I've been doing personal training, uh, since the kids went back to school in August and, um, and I switched to personal training versus CrossFit classes for exactly that same reason as I'm not, I'm really, I get swept up in the excitement and the momentum and that sort of drive that that CrossFit classes tend to have, and I push myself too hard. And what was happening in my sort of year-ish of CrossFit um, before that was – or a year and a half before that was that I would – 
get really great and consistent, start to see little gains and then burn myself out and then have to take a break and then get really good and consistent, push myself too hard, burn out and have to take a break. And, um, I knew with healing kitchen coming out, I'm working on another book now, uh, tentatively to come out this November. I like, I knew that I needed, I needed somebody who was going to stop me from doing that so that I could maintain that consistency of training. Because for me, like I love being strong and I love being fit and that's it. That's great. But for me, the real reason why I do CrossFit is because of how amazing it's been for my mental health. And it's just been such a phenomenal stress management tool for me. Um, and it's, it's like, I mean, I just, if I've, I've always said, if my brain would love to do CrossFit classes twice a day, every day, but my body clearly cannot keep up with that. Um, so trying to find that balance between what I can continue to do and what I can't and, um, switching to a personal training model where I have a coach, who's really hyper aware of my health issues. And if I walk, you know, walk in and say, Oh, I didn't sleep well last night, or I'm feeling a bit run down today. She will completely adapt whatever the plan was to make sure that we're doing something that's appropriate for my body on that day. Um, and that's meant that I've been able to be consistent for, you know, five, six straight months now, almost, um, with my classes, which is like the first time since I started CrossFit nearly, I mean, I guess a year and three quarters ago, um, that I've been able to really sort of maintain that, that type of consistency of training. And it's really paying off. I'm seeing some really great, um, strength gains. And, um, it's just me trying to say as, Somebody with autoimmune disease, that's one of the ways that I find that balance. And I think that coming back from an injury is another really good example of when having that other voice to tell you when to pull back or who can notice a, you know, a small difference in form way before you feel the small difference in form, um, that would be going down the wrong form road. Um, you know, that, that's really, really valuable. So that was, that was my, that was my like thumbs up. Cause you couldn't see the thumbs up. <laughs> well, I did do personal training before we had house of gains and I know that it worked really well for me to teach me a lot of the basic movements and stuff. So it's just going to be a matter of what I would really like to find is someone who would potentially come here and do it. So, um, sure. You'll be able to find somebody. Yeah. So we'll, I'll see. Anyway, my, my only point here is I'm just amazing, amazing news on that front because it has been, um, over six months now. And so seeing some relief in pain, um, has made a huge difference in my, um, daily life, like not just my lifting life, but my, my my mental health and that kind of stuff, yeah. it's just a huge relief to not be in chronic pain. So yay on that front. Unfortunately, <laughs> as soon as I was feeling better, I ended up um, getting hit with a, cu- a couple of like um, things. So um, from food poisoning to an infection. So I am, as you said, when I texted you, I think it was yesterday, the day before, when I thought it was a stomach flu, it could still have been the stomach flu, but it just, it hit me so violently so quickly that I'm going to assume that it was food poisoning. But I believe my words is you can't get a break. Have you tell the universe where to go yet? (laughs) That's the rated G version. Yeah. So, um, 
I'm just crossing my fingers that I've had my, you know, everything comes in threes in that that's my third. And you're good. I'm done. You're good now. I've put in. Yep. I've put in my time. I'm ready to just move on. So anyway, so for some you said good things to happen in threes now, right? So you said how how was I doing? And I was like, what? There you go. But honestly, my spirits are are up because at this point, I'm feeling much better yeah. from the the food situation, and I have hope about my back situation. Um. So yeah, I. I saw all your PRs and working out. I, your bench is at 110 now, which I'm like getting a little bit worried. Like, okay, I need to get back in the gym before Sarah catches up with me. Um, Cause I have a really, really low bench um, for what I do and that kind of stuff. So I'm like, Sarah's getting close. So my back squat PR yesterday earned me a spot on the leaderboard and I, you know, we put we put my name up there and I just assumed because it's one rep max week in my whole gym. So everybody's testing this week. And I just assumed my name would be up there for like two and a half hours, right? basically, until the next class was done. And then when I got in there this morning, it was still up. I was like, what just happened? <laughs> my name's still there. I'm like, well, maybe those people will catch up because there's you know, a bunch of people. There's three people tied for the first place on the board and then there's second place and then I'm in third place. And so I'm like, just just like two of those people hitting different numbers would automatically knock me off. So, um, so I'm like, Oh, you know, but it's, you know, it's still super, super fun to, to see your name up there and be like getting strong. It's a nice feeling. Um, it was also a nice feeling to know that I hit those numbers yesterday and I woke up this morning and I felt fine. Like I wasn't, particularly stiff like I just you know, my <laughs> I didn't I didn't have massive muscle dysfunction I was able to walk up and down stairs without noticing anything and um, went back to the gym this morning and hit the bench press um, PR and I was like this is I mean this is this is why I'm focusing I've been focusing really intently on nutrient density I've been following a pretty clean AIP I've been um, really working on sleep and I've been meditating every day and I've been I've been really um, focused on all the things that I know that I need to do to maintain my health. And it's because I want to be able to write this next epic science book um, in a fairly short period of time. So I'm like, the number one thing I need to do is prioritize my health. Uh, the number two thing I need to do is actually make time to write. Um and so, um, so I've been, I've been really careful and, and really making, I think some choices. It's one of the things that, especially when you battle with chronic illness is you'll often get faced with like the fun choice versus the good choice. Um, and I think people will know what that, you know, know what I mean by that. And it, it's, there's a lot of different times where there's the fun choice and then there's the good choice. And I had hit a point in my healing journey where I, I got a little bit rebellious and I wanted to start making the fun choice more often. And it took a while for that to really catch up to me, but I think it really did, especially by last summer. And so, um, you know, as the summer sort of and came to a close, I was like, it's time for me to really rein this in and start making the good choice rather than the fun choice. And, um, and it's been, at, I'm at a point now where I just, I feel really good. I like what I see when I look in the mirror. Um, you know, my clothes are fitting really well. I'm feeling really strong. I have a lot of energy. My brain's really focused and clear. And it's it's just all the things that, um, 
I really appreciate when they're there and I really miss them when they're not. And, um, and they're things that, you know, have been all related to symptoms of my autoimmune diseases that I've battled with for decades. And so I'm, I'm in a really good place right now and it's, I'm appreciating it. I, f- I feel a lot of gratitude and, and I'm proud of myself because, um, I, I put me here and, um, I put me here by, you know, saying no to some things that would have been great, but would have had me stay up too late or would have been, you know, food that wasn't good for me or would have been, um, sort of conflicting with other priorities. So I'm, um, yeah, I'm in a good place. That's nice. So I think that's a really good transition into our topic. I think that you phrased it really well um, to say that you made the fun choice over, what did you say, the smart choice or the, the good choice? I, I the tried better not- choice or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, I had talked with you about wanting to cover this topic. It's been a blog post in my head that I've been wanting to write for weeks and months and just doesn't seem like the right time. And I don't want to upset people and offend, you know, fellow bloggers and cookbook writers and listeners and readers. And so I just want to preemptively say before we begin the topic that um, this comes from a 100% place of wanting everybody to be healthy and wanting the best for everybody and coming from the intention of, you know, when I found paleo five and a half years ago, there was not resources like there are today. And there weren't rules. And, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about what is paleo and what is the goal of paleo. But I just also want to say that, of course, as we always have said, this is a very personalized approach that has to be sustainable and individually focused for everyone's health. I think the problem is that a lot of people that start paleo are unsure when they hear that, like, well, what's best for me and what should I start with? And, you know, I've been noticing a lot in the community lately that we, all of us bloggers openly admit that the things that get the most traffic, which are the things that drive revenue to our blogs, are the sweets and desserts and other type of recipes that might not be the most nutrient dense or healing or what I would call the fun options as you aptly described. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have openly said many times that we eat those things, especially, you know, with our children on birthdays and that kind of stuff. And I think the confusion comes in for people who are just starting paleo that they're not quite sure what paleo is. And then they find a lot of these recipes because they're what's popular in the internet. And there's a sense of there's much more than 20% if we're following an 80-20 rule of these kinds of recipes on the internet versus other kinds. That's also because there's only so many times you can put like chicken breast, broccoli, beef recipes on your blog or whatever. I mean, it's people are more interested in how do I recreate a bread? How do I recreate this other thing? That's harder to do than just let me throw the salmon in the oven. In in part two, as a, as a recipe developer, um, you know, to me, it's, I didn't have, that's how I've always cooked the salmon, right? That's how I've always cooked steak or have always cooked right chicken. It, and it, there are recipes that were paleo before being a paleo recipe blogger. So there's that extra, 
you know, there's two sides to this coin. One is as a blogger, there's this, uh, I think not fair, um, but this strange incentive to create recipes that meet a demand. And then there's a demand for these, um, sort of paleofied Western foods because, of I think because of food addiction. I mean, I think that it really boils down to, um, you know, when people see a list of no's and they want to start the paleo diet, they want to know that they're not going to be deprived. And then it opens the door for making the fun choice. And in many cases, um, you know, a, a not health promoting choice. Like there's, we're going to get to this, but there's, there's, um, there's, better approaches and not as healthy approaches to some of these recipes. And we're getting quite the variety now in the paleo movement. So exactly. (laughs) First of all, but you know, from, from my perspective, because I feel like, you know, we're, we're both on the show together, but also there are certain topics that are clearly um, ones that you know more about. And there are clearly topics that, you know, I'm kind of soapboxing about, right? And I'll be the first one to say, like, this was a topic that I wanted to cover. And if there's a finger to point, feel free to point it at me. Um, feel free to point fingers at Stacy. <laughs> Her address is. <laughs> also, you know, I realized that I and our blog m- might have promoted this ideal of kind of what I'm calling missing the point of paleo. And there have been several times in my life where I got caught up in these not the best choices, the fun choices, and these food recreations. And I talked a lot about that on our challenge podcast and talking about how, you know, when I do a challenge, the first thing that I do is I play this like mental eating disorder kind of game with, well, what not health promoting food can I create that are within the boundaries of the of the How rules? How can I take a green apple and a bunch of nuts and turn them into something that feels like a dessert? Right, and then eat way more calories and than eat I need. Eight hundred calories worth of yeah. Right. So you know what I wanted to talk about are kind of our lines of paleo. I don't want to call them rules because. Like I said, everybody has their own version of paleo, and I think it's really important that we all understand that. What works for Sarah is a little bit different than works for both of us. However, what works really well for both of us is when we focus on eating, you know, nutrient-dense, anti-inflammatory, healing foods that make our bodies feel really good. Vegetables, seafood, organ meats, broth, the foods that we talk about all the time, and then we incorporate in the lifestyle factors that we talk about often, sleep, activity, you know, stress management, sunlight, that kind of stuff so that... I'm wearing my amber-tinted glasses right now. <laughs> when we, And I'm rocking them. I'm, I'm just sh- saying. I'm sure. But w- when we do that sort of thing, it enables us to make healthier choices and feel our best versus you know, getting on this snowball that we frequently refer to as, you know, this, this cascading, um, path of negativity where, you know, you skip a night's sleep and then there's sugar and then, you know, like even a paleo sugar and then this, and then this, and then this. So for me, as I feel like we all, as I feel like a lot of people engage in resolutions in the new year, and then part of the way through January, maybe even into February, um, they become more difficult or they start to wear off or that short-term assignment that you gave to them 
is coming to a close, I wanted to talk a little bit about what is the point of paleo. And just to remind us all that, you know, it's not about perfection. It's it's never between Sarah or I been about perfection and, and neither one of us live that life and nor do we expect anybody else to. But it's it is about making sure that we're all living our healthiest life and what I call, you know, self respect and self love and figuring out those things that work for you. And so we just I wanted to have a show where we talk about what those things are and also what some of those things are aren't. Because not only are there paleo recreations, and I'm using quotation marks when I do that, and you can't see that, even though you've got magical glasses on, it is not through the computer. I do not allow me to actually see you. Even in some of those recipes, there are ingredients that are being used that are clearly identified in the community as not paleo friendly. And so we're going to talk to you about some of those ingredients. I know Sarah's got a lot of science um, articles on her blog about most of these ingredients that we'll talk about, and we will definitely link to those in the show notes. Um, But just from a, a discussion point of view, I felt it was important for us to address, you know, what are all these ingredients? Because I don't know about you, Sarah, but I'm also asked on almost a daily basis, like, well, that's dairy. I thought paleo wasn't dairy. And what is team white rice? And, you know, these kinds of things. And so we can talk about. There's a lot of confusion. I mean, I, um, one of the recipes that I've posted that's probably caused the most consternation was actually a green bean recipe. And it was, it was roasted green beans. I mean, what is, I think a, a very, you know, it's a kind of a different class of recipes compared to, you know, talking about, you know, breads or treats or whatever. And, um, you know, but legumes aren't paleo. And so there's, there's, I mean, part of the issue here is that there's this huge um, collection of ingredients that are considered gray areas. And um, the, the science on them is not cut and dry. Uh, so, for example, you know, I just mentioned green beans, legumes with edible pods. So that would include green beans. Uh, snow peas, sugar snap peas, right? When you're eating the pod as as well as the bean, they are um, a very different type of uh, plant than the dried beans, you know, like black beans, kidney beans, soybeans, peanuts. And when you actually examine the chemical structure of the, the problematic compounds in them, in legumes with edible pods, they're very, very weak interacting and they're very easily deactivated by heat. And it becomes like the whole argument against legumes kinds of fall, falls apart when you start talking about something like green beans or peas. And so it it's sort of, I mean, I think it was Mark Sisson really who probably four or five years ago said, hey, there is no reason why we shouldn't eat these foods. You look at, you know, these are a green vegetable with lots of, you know, good nutrition. And it became absorbed into the paleo community with still, you know, purists who, you know, won't touch green beans. And I know for myself, I actually don't do very well on them. And I don't eat them myself, but I do feed them to my husband and kids. And so there's a bunch of examples. And I think we'll talk more about examples like dairy of foods that have um, where the science is not as cut and dry. And so that means that it's really a lot harder to put that food into a yes or no list. And it becomes a food that is a, look, try a um, clean paleo diet. Can we call it a clean paleo diet for a month or two months or three months until you've seen the health improvements that you were looking for? And then 
play around with some of these gray area foods and see how you do with them because we're finding in the paleo community that especially after a period of healing, that people will do really well with things like green beans or high quality grass fed dairy. And, um, and it, part of it is how do we, how do we determine whether a food is a paleo food or a non-paleo food? And I think that you know, when paleo first was popularized, gosh, like 15 years ago now, it really came from a, from the perspective of evolutionary biology. And it really came from the perspective of do hunter-gatherers eat it, yes or no? Do, is there evidence that paleolithic man ate it before 10, 15,000 years ago, yes or no? Um, and, and then if the answer is, you know, yes, cavemen and hunter-gatherers eat it, then it's paleo. And it was, you know, very heavily focused on, um, you know, lean meats, vegetables and um and as we've started to look at even that argument in more detail we see well you know hunter gatherers eat every part of the animal so they're not just you know it's yes a, a wild antelope you know muscle meat is leaner than a you know cow raised in a concentrated animal feedlot muscle meat but when you look at the amount of other fatty tissues on that animal that are still being eaten a hunter-gatherer's diet was not as lean as sort of this original take on paleo and we look at we see hunter-gatherers who do eat consume dairy and we see hunter-gatherers that do consume legumes and um if our if our metric is well hunter-gatherers are healthy because of what they eat so we should eat that way then we start to get into some more difficult territory in terms of an argument. You know, we, we're getting new um, new studies from the paleoanthropological record showing grain consumption much farther back than originally thought. So, you know, back about 30,000 years instead of 10,000 years. And we can see, um, you know, we can see some evidence even of grain consumption in periods of starvation as early as 105,000 years ago. So we start to go, well, how long is long enough for evolutionary adaptation? When you take that argument, the, the waters get murky really, really quickly. And I feel that um, when you take that argument, you're missing a very, very important point. And that is that these peoples had a lot more inputs into their health than just what they ate. And we can hypothesize all day long that what they ate was why they had such great bone structure and such great teeth. And as long as they didn't suffer a catastrophic injury or illness that they lived uh, to just as old age as we do with much better health. So we can, we can say that, but we can't take those people and put and, and switch their diets and say, Oh, look, now they're sick. Um, I mean, there certainly are some studies of, hunter-gatherers in Australia that were westernized and returned to their original hunter-gatherer lifestyles. And when they started eating Western diet, they got diabetes and obese and went back to the hunter-gatherer lifestyle. Their diabetes went away and they lost all this weight. There's a little bit of that, but they, there's also the sunlight, the stress, the activity, the sleep, the living in sync with the sun, the being outside, connecting with nature, this, the tight social groups, and these things from science that we know are extremely important. And I feel that if you want to devise an optimal diet for human health, you need to look at mechanisms. So you need to look at what do the compounds in those foods 
How, how do they actually interact with the human body? Are they nutrients? So they promote health. Are they inflammatory? Are they going to interfere with the gut barrier? Are they going to feed the wrong kinds of bacteria in our gut? And it turns out we have a tremendous body of scientific literature that when you use this more modern biology, right, physiology, cell biology, molecular biology, biochemistry, when you use that metric, use that approach to evaluate whether or not a food is a health-promoting food or um, sort of, you know, at best a sort of neutral food and at worst a food that's undermining health, you come to basically the same set of rules. You come to the same meat, seafood, eggs, vegetables, fruit, nuts, and seeds, right? These are the foods that we know are health-promoting. And when you cut out everything else, you're cutting out empty calories, you're cutting out processed foods, you're cutting out inflammatory compounds, you're cutting out things that spike blood sugar. And um, and it stops being about, like, did a caveman have that? Did a caveman wander around with a bag of salt? No. Did they get a lot of uh, sodium through... Uh, water sources, fresh water sources, yes. Did they get a lot of sodium through natural salt licks? Almost certainly. Did they get a lot of sodium through all of the plant materials that they're eating? Definitely. Were they potassium deficient like we are now? Absolutely not. They were getting tons of potassium, and that's why their sodium intake was not causing high blood pressure. So when you take this much more, I think, thorough point of view to establishing a, a list of yeses and nos. First of all, you um, can understand how a food is going to affect people, I think, in a more thorough way. And second of all, we still end up with gray areas. We still end up with dairy is not a cut and dry issue. But I still don't think that – I think that a food that we can't say is resounding yes needs to be held off of whatever – however we – we define sort of clean paleo or standard paleo. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, and that's, I mean, that's how I personally uh, approach it. And I, I feel like a lot of people who've been doing it a long time get that. It's just, if it's not a cut and dry concept, you know, if there aren't like steadfast rules, like, okay, don't do it until such and such a date or whatever, which it, we can't prescribe to people to do, then it becomes, um, confusing understandably you know yeah so i think you know for me when i'm trying to communicate what paleo is i try to give people i try to explain that it's a template and that within that template there's a lot of room for individual experimentation and figuring out what works for you and part of that is also figuring out balance and sustainability so figuring out where your wiggle room is um and you know what it's finding that that space between what makes your body thrive versus what you tolerate and living somewhere in the middle and finding that place in the middle where you feel really content with your food choices, um, the amount of time commitment, the amount of money spent is all, you know, perfectly, you know, fits within your life and you can keep doing this forever because the paleo diet, it's not a diet that you go on to lose 10 pounds for a wedding. Like and and that's why so many people have stopped using the word diet, started using the word lifestyle, paleo lifestyle. I mean, it also helps incorporate all of these actual lifestyle factors into the choices. But it's not something that you you do to achieve a short term goal. You know, paleo choices are about long term health. So it's about 
hopefully extending our lifespans. But I think more importantly, it's certainly more important to me is about having super high quality of life for as long as I can. Um, you know, I, I would like to be like my great, great uncle who lived by himself in his own home until he was 91. And, you know, like that, that to me is, um, more important than the number 91 was the fact that, you know, he got to have that wonderful independence and his super active social life and be in his own home for that long. And that to me is what, what, um, it's, it's the long game, right? That's what, paleo is for me it's long-term health agreed um so let's talk about some of the details on how we get there maybe how we define what is paleo so one of the things that i like to emphasize when people are asking me about the paleo diet is that there is no macronutrient prescription within paleo. So there's this, um, there's various misconceptions. And I think probably our listeners have heard the, um, oh, you know, paleo is all meat. And they've probably already realized that it's not hashtag more vegetables than a vegetarian. Um, I personally aim for about three quarters of my plate to be covered in vegetables but anywhere between a half and three quarters is probably in a really healthful range and replicates the range that we see in terms of calories from meat versus plants that we see in hunter gatherers. And, um, and so that's like one of the, I think the first things is that it's not an all meat diet, but it does include meat. And there are nutrients that we get from meat that we can't get from plant sources, just like there's nutrients in plants that we can't get from meat sources. So it's really a diet that balances um, animal foods and plant foods. And it's certainly a whole foods diet, but it's not, it's not by definition a high fat diet. In fact, the originator, original sort of uh, popularizers of paleo still maintain that it should be done in a much lower fat way than it currently is implemented um, with something like 20 to 30 percent of calories coming from fat rather than 40 to 60. I think what we see in hunter gatherers, I think for I think the range is something like 28 to 55 is I think somewhere around the range. And we know from scientific studies that around 60 percent dietary fat is where we start to see a lot of the high fat health detriments. And we can talk all day about the quality of fat. Um, but we know, for example, that even high good fats will cause a um, undesirable shift in the gut microbiome. So um, so there's this idea that that paleo must be low carbon, high fat, and, and really the science doesn't support that. And that's not how most people implement it. So it's not it's not by default a low carb. I actually got asked uh, in an interview last week, like, why aren't sweet potatoes paleo? To which I replied, oh, but they are. <laughs> so, so there's this, um, there's even some misconceptions about carbohydrate sources. Um, paleo absolutely endorses uh, starchy vegetables as as great carbohydrate sources, as well as fruit. Um, and so there's there's no shortage of carbs. It's certainly Typically, I would call it more moderate carb. It's lower carb than uh, a fast food sort of typical uh, Western, bad Western diet. Um, And it's probably lower carb even than a really whole grain centered 
what would be called good. I'm, I'm using your quotes and making a face at the same time. Um, Western diet, um, but it's it's not it's not by definition low carb. There's no you need to hit this many grams of carbs or this many grams of fat or this many grams of protein. But instead, it's a diet that really it hones in on the foods within the modern food supply that have the most micronutrients per energy to offer us. So it's the foods that have the most essential building blocks that our cells need, the raw materials for all of the chemical reactions in every cell in every moment. It has most of those uh, for the least amount of energy. And it's one of the biggest problems we have in the standard American diet is that um, you know, on average, we're getting two or three times as many calories that we need, and we're hitting maybe 10 to 20% of our nutritional targets. We're actually hitting – we're incredibly vitamin and mineral deficient, and meanwhile, we're having all this extra energy. And one of the problems with that is that we actually need more vitamins and minerals to process extra energy healthfully if we do have you know, a day where we're eating too much. So it's – it's really basically cutting out everything that could be considered an empty calorie and, and really honing in on the most nutrient dense foods. And it's why, you know, for me, I really, when I think of how I eat, I don't know that I, and we don't use the word paleo in our house very often, for example. Um, and it's sort of been a, a more recent thing that I've had to sort of explain to my kids that the way we eat has a name and it's called paleo. Um, you know, they know the words gluten free and they know the words dairy free because that's their like lines that they can't cross in terms of their health and due to their food intolerances. But I've had to sort of say like, you know, it's there is an easy word for how we eat. It's called the paleo diet. It means that we eat meat and vegetables a lot and some fruit and some nuts and seeds and some eggs. Right. And it's um, and they kind of go, oh, OK, but um, but for me, I, I think of it as a nutrient dense diet an anti-inflammatory diet. I think of it as a diet that promotes optimal gut health. And I think of it as a diet that promotes optimal hormone regulation. And I think that if we could find some kind of really cool acronym that incorporated all of that, we'd have a much easier time um, sort of selling the paleo diet, right? Like, and I, I used air quotes again, which you still can't see, but I didn't make a face that time. But I think that one of the limitations for the growth of this movement is the branding. It's also one of the strengths, right? Paleo is a very, right, it's the highest search term on Google, diet-related search term, and, and people are starting to recognize it. But it comes with this stigma of, you know, eating like a caveman and going back to that evolutionary biology argument for why we're even making these particular food choices. Have you seen um, the new show, My Diet is Better Than Yours, which is like a complete 180 I've, from the approach that we're taking here? I've seen that it exists, but I haven't actually seen it. Have you actually seen it? I have. Abel James is on it and his version of paleo, which is high fat, but that has no bearing, is called The Wild Diet is yeah. how they describe it on the show. Um, the that's the title of his book, right? Right. And I feel like it's easier to understand and get behind. Um, there's also like perfect health diet, bulletproof diet, different kinds of things like that, that are very tangentially paleo, but have some nuances to them um, that aren't necessarily associated with that 
historical reenactment portion of, you know, anthropology and ancestors and all that kind of stuff, because it simply doesn't have it in the name. And um, I mean, there's good news, bad news with that. The good news is that the the idea and the pictorials of cavemen and, you know, being able to say things like, well, cavemen died early, so clearly this isn't the diet we should all follow, are all sound bites that create topics and conversations that then stir interest and discussion. And that's probably why paleo took off more than anything else, simply because, um, what do they say? Any press is good press, right? So, (laughs) so. um, nevertheless, it is what it is, right? We're, it's been for me over five years. And I heard Rob Wolf have the same kind of talk about, should we rename it when I was like a year or two into paleo on his podcast? And at that point he was like, too late now. Um, and that I was, I mean, there's the last estimates that I saw was seven to eight million Americans following a paleo diet. Like that more than vegetarians and vegans combined. And that I don't think that includes all the people who are into real food movement, which is really close to paleo, but because they eat rice or because they eat dairy, they call themselves not paleo. Like I meet so many people like that that say, you know, I love you. I love your blog, but I'm not paleo because you know, I eat this one thing. And it, I always tend tend to just like roll my eyes and tell them like, you you know, you can call yourself whatever you want to call yourself. Like it doesn't, it doesn't have to be a label. And certainly you're not kicked out of the club because, you know, you eat this one thing or other things. So maybe that leads into the ingredients that are technically within the paleo fold or not within the paleo fold and the different reasons for that. Um, which I think is, is kind of the the crux of it for me, right? It, which is, you know, we, we wrote the third phase of Real Life Paleo with a lot of what you talked about in mind. And, you know, with this idea that, and the hope that people would get into the paleo lifestyle and go through, you know, what we called phase one, which is the transition period. It could be one week, one month, one year, five years, you know, different people, it's going to take different amount of time to move past, you know, some of those transitional type foods like recreations of, you know, waffles or even still buying gluten-free pasta or whatever for your kids, right? Like those are things that we, Sarah and I have both done um, because it needs to be sustainable and long-term. And if you jump in, Um, full force for some people that's not going to work but the idea was that then there's a transition of getting on to true paleo which we called phase two and then getting to those you know sarah's superfoods that she identifies in the paleo approach and that we identify in phase three which are you know the really healing nutrient dense anti-inflammatory medicinal type superfoods and um the the trouble that I have seen and that we talked about before is that the popularity of things like bread and brownies and donuts and ice cream and these recreation type foods are so much more popular, um, the supply and demand kind of aspect, that those superfoods aren't what we see um, on the internet and in specifically social media. Like I've had several people tell me, oh, I had to stop following so-and-so on social media because I was getting cravings for food that I don't normally want to eat because I was seeing it in their feed all the time. And 
I think, you know, that's not to say that anyone isn't entitled to post whatever they want to post, but I think it's important that we all be self-aware. And I think it's really great that those people were able to identify that they were being exposed to something that was triggering an emotional or a response about food that they didn't want to see and then were reacting to it. And even though those foods were technically, well, some of them (laughs) were technically paleo because they were made with nuts and seeds and eggs, um, and then sweeteners, right? So wanted to talk a lot about some of those kinds of food, but also some of the ingredients that really aren't paleo at all. And ingredients from uh, gluten-free cooking techniques into recipes and products, not just recipes, but products that are have the word paleo on the label. Yeah, that's – it's – I mean, you can't. Every time we pick up a piece of food, even if it says paleo on it, my kids, oh, no. I, my kids know you read the ingredients. Absolutely. I've seen some, I mean, I've seen things labeled paleo that are completely made out of rice. Like we can talk about whether or not rice is a food to reintroduce once you've seen some healing and what are the pros and cons of rice, but we're not going to call that paleo. And we're not going to put that rice-based protein, you know, rice and whey protein bar on a shelf and call it a paleo protein bar. Like that to me is like just like what all – it's just a gluten-free protein bar is what this is. Like it's not – you can't call this paleo. And that doesn't mean that somebody's not going to choose that within their their own, you know, paleo implementation and and discover that it works really well for them. It's it's just – I don't think that that label is accurate. Um, let's talk about some of the ingredients that are like the, um, you know, the old school paleo baked good ingredients that, um, you know, are good clean. I mean, I'll call them good clean paleo ingredients. Like they fit the paleo template, even though when you're combining them into these foods, what you're doing is you're creating a highly palatable and very energy dense food. And it's not ever going to be um, a nutrient competitor for a plate that's like meat and vegetables. If you're making a cookie, it cannot compete with a plate of meat and vegetables in terms of nutrient density. Even if you're using lots of ground up nuts and seeds, um, you know, and, and eggs, it's still, it's going to be very, very energy dense for the amount of nutrients in it. And I think that's that's my point. <laughs> Look at me. Um, is there are so many people that come to paleo either looking to lose weight or find health or both. And so this idea that they're going to eat, even if it's a even if it's a completely quote unquote clean paleo treat, you know, a cookie or a slice of paleo banana bread can have three, four, five hundred calories in it. And where paleo is not about counting calories, when you start thinking about the amount of additional caloric intake, not even just what it's doing to your gut health and that kind of stuff, if it's not true paleo, but even if it is true paleo, that's not the point, right? That is, that's the transitional food. That's the feel good food. That's the, I'm having a birthday food. But this idea that it's Tuesday and just because we're going to have dessert every night or whatever, I think that's really where 
everyone in the community is trying to get us away from because it's just not going to heal you and it's not going to help you. There's a very big difference between using these foods in or these types of recipes and these types of products in moderation for a treat on occasion versus using them as crutches, um, using them to satisfy cravings and not actually allowing your palate to adapt. Um, you know, it's to me, there's a, there's a, there's a whole range of difference between like, I think these are all legitimate treats and I think having a treat once in a while is absolutely valid. I don't think that we need to give up our, you know, I think it's human nature to celebrate with food I think it's human nature to um, bond over food, to grieve with food. I mean, we have certain um, times in our life where where food is a feature, and I think that I I think that battling that instinct is not what this is about. But I think where it becomes a problem is where we are um, basically creating a paleo version of a, a food that we were. Um, you know, not having a health, healthy emotional relationship with, right? So we're, you know, for me, I have a history of food addiction and I can absolutely satisfy my food addicted brain with paleo treats. Like I, I could go down that road and I'd probably still be 300 pounds. And, um, and so it, there's, there's this, there's this really interesting it becomes really hard to define, like how occasional is occasional, because I think that now we start to talk about individual tolerance again. Um, how do you feel when you eat that? What's the rest of your diet like? How good is your sleep? How active are you? What are your health goals? How far away from your health goals are you? And some people do great with a treat a week. Um, me, I do better with one every three months, like, or probably never. Um but I, you know, but I'll have fruit as part of my daily diet, for example. So there's a there's an interesting conversation here because to, in order to emphasize in moderation on occasion, people want you to define that. But it's a really difficult thing to to put a number on, and especially within a diet framework that's trying to avoid numbers and is trying to avoid having you measure things and count things and, um, you know, like. There's no setting a timer for when you're going to eat. In fact, spacing out your meals is better. There's no like you're going to have this size ounces of this and this many cups of this. Um, and when you choose foods within a paleo framework, most people will very, very naturally end up in a healthful caloric range for their bodies. The exceptions are people with a history of obesity, food addiction, and binge eating disorder, in which case more mindfulness to portions um, – often is is needed and it makes it harder when you when you're satisfying those cravings with you know high caloric density high sugar high fat foods um, and not giving your brain or your hormones or your taste buds a chance to really adapt to this nutrient dense health promoting diet agreed i think i think that the idea of Changing the palate is a really good one that I think is, you know, important to highlight because it's really difficult 
to know that you're addicted to these highly palatable foods. It happens to me several times a year where, you know, either it's because of my birthday or because of something and I say, okay, I'm going to enjoy this treat and I'm going to, you know, do whatever. And then there's leftovers in the house. And then before I know it, I've had two or three servings or, you know, whatever. And then my body craves it and then my palate changes and then I want those foods more often. So I think, you know, for me, sticking to fruit and fruit sweetened things are, are really helpful just in terms of, you know, getting my mind straight and that kind of stuff. I don't want to dictate to anybody what they should or should not do. I just think that it's really important to understand that these foods are so detrimental to, to your health. I mean, there's like a bajillion things on the internet about, you know, how sugar affects your body if you want to read it. But, you know, when you question whether or not to eat grains or whether or not to consume alcohol or, you know, we'll, we have a list we want to talk about. Um, it's important to understand that sweeteners do the same thing to your body. And so, you know, thinking about consuming a sweet treat with the same frequency that you would alcohol if you were trying to heal and lose weight and that sort of thing. Because what it's doing to your body, to your liver, to your pancreas, all that kind of stuff is is just really important. And carbohydrates, here's how about I just jump into this. Carbohydrates is one of those things that is um, consumed by your body in the same way that a sweetener would be. And so I'm, I will call out my friend's Otto's cassava flour, right? And I, I know Sarah and I both use it in in recipes, especially within the autoimmune community. It is a unique sort of um, base that can be used because it doesn't have nuts and it doesn't have some other things. However, it is straight starch. It is just hundred percent starch. And so if, you know, you're, you have goals of improving your health or losing weight, or you, you want the benefits of paleo, it would be missing the point to be making a lot of things, a lot of time with, with cassava flour, because it is void of healing nutrients for your body. And that doesn't mean to say that it's never to be consumed. Sarah and I both have recipes and we consume it. It's just not the point of paleo. You had something to say, Sarah? Um, no, I think <laughs> done. <laughs> no, I think that, um, you know, I, I agree. I mean, I think that cassava flour has become my, probably my favorite paleo flour for those times when I do want to work on a recreation, I do want to do some baking or I do want to make some bread. I mean, in part because it really is just a ground up root and tuber. It avoids a lot of the problems with eating huge amounts of nuts that we see in nut and seed flour recipes. But I'm very mindful that it is a starch bomb when I make something out of it. And that means that it needs to be occasional and it needs to be um, moderate in dose. And just like if I made cassava fries, I was actually calculating the number of calories and, and carbohydrate grams in 
homemade cassava fries the other day and I was uh, shocked and astonished. Yeah. Um, Doing my fitness pal for me has been really eye opening (laughs) (laughs) with that kind of stuff. So, um, and what's funny is my, my husband is trying to gain weight. And so I took all of the cassava fries off my plate and put them on his. Um, But uh, they, you know, they are, it's, it's a very calorically dense food. It is a, moderate glycemic load food so it's a slow burning starch which is really really nice um but even you know large quantities of even a slow burning starch i you know when i started my health journey i was right on the border between pre-diabetes and type 2 diabetes i have to be really mindful about blood sugar regulation i do not have any signs of diabetes now um even my second pregnancy i didn't develop gestational diabetes but i it's still something that i think about like i cannot eat all of the starch. That doesn't mean I want to follow a low carbohydrate diet, but it does mean that I don't want to eat 300 grams of starch at once. Well, and it's also, for me, at least where I'm coming from, it's difficult for me to get in the nutrients that I do want to consume within the caloric load that is appropriate for my body and my activity level if I'm eating really energy dense foods as you call them and whether that's you know nut based or cassava flour based or um even like if I'm adding bananas to things right it sneaks up really quickly yeah exactly so okay so that's just an example of something where we're both we both use that stuff you will see me like earlier today I had calamari that were dusted in cassava flour Mm. it's seafood (laughs) lightly dusted in cassava flour first of all second of all it's but i'm i i have to make myself aware that i have to balance out that sort of thing right i and that's for me and my health and my goals and i think that's just my my whole point with all of this is that I just hope that people are mindful of what their goals are and what the point of it all is. Because for some people, it might be, you know, they're lean athletes with great metabolisms and they just don't feel great on junk food. And if that's the case, it's a lot different for people who are, you know, metabolically broken, looking to lose weight or have health issues. So um, we've been rambling a lot. It's already almost an hour. So why don't we talk about... Let's do a quick list of ingredients that if I see it, I know it's a treat, but I'm not going to run for the hills. So, because I think that giving a, I always like to give a yes list before I give a no list. And I think that that's really important. So we already mentioned cassava flour we think is great. But again, um, for most people thinking of it as a treat, I would put tapioca flour, arrowroot starch, um, any ground nut or seed or nut or seed meal. Um, in that category, I would put um, chestnut flour, um, any ground root or starch, so like a sweet potato flour, um, coconut flour. I put in that same category. So I would, I would just list off all the sweeteners in that category too. Anything yeah. sweetened with anything other than fruit goes in that category for me. Honey, so maple syrup, honey, maple syrup cane sugar. Cane sugar. Um, tapioca syrup. Um, trying to think of some of the other ones that date, are okay, date, but date sugar. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I guess that's a fruit, but once you start talking about date syrup or date sugar, it's getting more more processed. Um, uh, those, I mean, those to me are like that. That is the paleo sugars. Um, yeah, and 
so then there's also, in addition to all the flowers that you listed, I would add rice flour to that for me. I'm not going to run from that, but I think of it the same way that I think of like arrowroot or um, tapioca for me. It doesn't. So I, I put rice flour in a different category and I'll, I'll tell you why. And that's because there's a, a collection of studies showing that rice has a high um, probability of being problematic for celiacs. And it is a potential gluten cross reactor for some people. So what a gluten cross reactor means is that if you are a person who forms antibodies against gluten, there are certain proteins and other foods that have enough similarity that there's a higher probability that the antibody that you make against gluten will also see that other food as being the same thing. So rice is one, dairy is one, I believe soy is one. Um, and so they're, they're, Foods that we see that are often sort of co-sensitive. So if you have a sensitivity, like an intolerance where you're making antibodies against gluten, there's a higher probability of making antibodies that recognize these other things. Rice overall is a very low allergenicity food. So the probability of allergens is very low. Um, the, you know, when we talk about um, the inflammatory compounds in grains, the ones in rice are very I'm much more easily deactivated by heat. They're much weaker reacting. So from that perspective, it's um, not as problematic of a food as other grains. Um, but because there is this percentage of, of people who have um, gluten intolerant that also react to rice, I like to put it in the reintroduction food. So the um, you know to follow this clean paleo diet and then play with things like high quality dairy rice, uh, high quality dairy and rice. <laughs> That's what I got. Potatoes. Potatoes, um, alcohol, um, you know, these, these things that, um, you know, science shows can be, you know, there are compounds in there that would make us leery, especially for not very healthy people. Um, but so I put rice in that category and I know that rice works for a lot of people. I've heard other people um, make – it makes them violently ill. I had one one person on my Facebook page once tell me that rice was slow gluten, which I thought was awesome. Um, so uh, yeah, so I definitely put rice in um, in that separate category. I mean my husband and my kids do great with rice. I have rice occasionally. Um but just because it works for me doesn't – I don't feel like that's enough to give it a green light. And I feel like the science doesn't really support it being um, an off-the-bat okay treat food. Sorry to disagree. No, I just – I'm telling you what I see and what I run from and rice isn't that for me, right? So how about a few things that are definitely in the identified, scientifically supported – not paleo category, either because of, you know, gut irritation or other problematic health impl implications. Any non-nutritive sweetener. There is no way to cheat sweet. So our bodies can actually process glucose way better than we can process any like xylitol or erythriol or... Um, Agave nectar, I mean, agave nectar is just fructose. If you don't like high fructose corn syrup, then why are you switching it out for agave? It's the same thing, except one comes from a cactus and one's processed from corn. Um, 
Uh, so, and, and I also don't like stevia and we've talked about it on the show before. Um, and part of it is, so many of these are gut irritants. Many of them feed, uh, preferentially feed E. coli, um, and can lead to gut dysbiosis. Many of them cause, uh, gastrointestinal symptoms. Um, many of them, um, um, and stevia, for example, is, uh, potentially is an interesting, there's a collection of studies that shows that it may disrupt hormone signaling. And there's a collection of studies that show that it doesn't, but it's a really jury is out, um, thing. And, um, it's enough information for me to go, I'm not going to touch stevia with a 10 foot pole. Um, it's also with all of these non-nutritive sweeteners, there's, um, a group of people who have what's called cephalic phase insulin release. So we taste something sweet and our brains tell our pancreas, well, there's sugar come and get ready. And we release insulin in anticipation of high blood sugar. When we don't have that high blood sugar, then our blood sugar tanks because we've got insulin in our blood and it soaks up, you know, sends whatever blood sugar is in our blood into our cells. And then that increases hunger and it causes this massive energy dip. And it's one of the reasons why diet soda is so strongly associated with weight gain. Um, and I, um, we've got clinical trials and I know you know, people in person who the only change they made was give up diet soda and they lost weight. And it's because of the effects on um, hunger and, and cravings. Um, and so we've got that effect across the board. So it's far better to have a moderate amount of a real sugar than it is to have any any kind of fake sugar. Um, and I really, when it comes to sugar, really look for nutrient-dense sugars. Um, so whole fruit sources of sugar, so sweetening something with um, banana or dates. Um, and blackstrap molasses, I think, is actually a weird exception to the sugar rule because it's so nutrient-dense. It's everything... It's all the nutrients that are, are are taken out of sugar in the refinement process are concentrated in blackstrap molasses. So in 40 calories of blackstrap molasses, you're getting like 20% of your um, RDA of calcium and iron and like 8 to 10% of a whole pile of B vitamins um, and some other really important minerals like chromium, which actually improves blood sugar regulation. So I put blackstrap molasses in the uh, – in the okay category, but any non-nutritive sweetener, I think, um, you know, people may still choose it for whatever their personal reasons are. It's, we don't call those things paleo. So things that, um, really affect me are things that are digestive in nature or, you know, cause upset for my digestion. I'm really sensitive emulsifiers. to Emulsifiers. So for me, it's definitely emulsifiers. Um, I noticed it first in drinking canned coconut milk that had guar gum in it. That was mm. my the first time that I kind of realized um, that what I called additives or um, thickeners, emulsifiers, whatever we're going to refer to them as, cause dysregulation in my digestive um, track, which tells me <laughs> my body doesn't like something. Um, also, anytime anybody gets gas or something like that, it's not... It's common, but it's not, no, it's, yeah, it's common, but it's not normal. So I would definitely recommend that people think about the things that they're, they're so consuming and how their body reacts, but the list of them. Let's list, let's list the common ones that we're starting to see, especially getting used in 
um, paleo baking recipes and products. So guar gum, carrageenan, xanthan gum, and cellulose gum are probably the four most common that we're seeing either in paleo products um, and lecithin. So even if it's sunflower lecithin, we're seeing those in, in either products that are geared towards a paleo market or in recipes, especially xanthan gum and guar gum are starting to, they're like a gluten-free cooking strategy for like, how do you make things bind without gluten and especially egg-free gluten-free. And they're all pretty intense gut irritants. And I, um, I've written about all the science behind them before we can link to my, my post in the show notes. And I think we've talked about it on the show before as well. So we can link to the previous episode. Um, but they're, they're all, they're all really intense gut irritants. They don't belong in a diet that calls itself health promoting. Um, that again, doesn't mean that, you know, an individual might have a, a reason for choosing it once in a while, but um, if you see a recipe or product with those with those um, emulsifiers slash thickeners in them, uh, they are not paleo. Um, another one that we see a lot is psyllium husk. This please. is my personal pet peeve, by the way. Oh, please, <laughs> please. Take I don't it know. Away, then. I don't know why I have such an um, an upset about this ingredient versus anything else. I think mostly because I see it more often. It is a carryover from as the other ingredients, gluten-free baked goods. Um, but it is the exact food that we seek to avoid. So if you think, for example, people are often like, well, what is psyllium husk? Because you, you hear other, like I heard the Powell's recommend it as a um, source of fiber and a good food for people trying to lose weight to consume. But that's the same mentality that would be given for brown rice over white rice. So in the paleo community, we have countless information on the web about if you're going to consume rice, the recommended um, food to consume is white rice and specifically polished white rice, not bleached white rice, because it polishes off the husk of the rice, which is the inflammatory por- portion of it. That Where is- all the anti-nutrients are concentrated. Exactly. So all the gut irritants and inflammatory compounds. So what psyllium husk is, is that portion of a husk that has been taken off and that you are then consuming. So it is the very part of what we say not to consume in rice, we're then taking tablespoons of, which is a very significant portion if you're thinking about how much you would eat of some sort of husk if you were eating the whole food, right? You're taking tablespoons of it and then you're putting it in to foods. Now, I, I've personally talked to people in the community who are using this as an ingredient who say that they don't have a problem digesting it. And if that's the case, you know, more power to them. But for me, I am so sensitive digestively that I can tell you that this food, even if I go to a gluten-free bakery and I have one thing I can tell immediately if psyllium husk is in that food because I get gas like immediately, unlike anything else. So, you know, to me, the fact that we're calling something paleo, it's not so much that people are consuming it that I have any sort of problem with. I can, I have consumed it. It's that I consume it knowing that it is not a paleo ingredient. And so if we're making recipes and we're calling something paleo and then we're putting all of these 
thickeners and additives and sweeteners, you know, and especially if you're talking about a recipe that has basically all of the things that we've talked about. Let's say it has a gum. Let's say it has psyllium husk. Let's say it has a a sugar or a sweetener. And let's say it's also made with a starch like arrowroot or potato starch. Like, let's look at that food and think about, is that a health promoting food? Like how much better off are we eating that food and the nutrient makeup of it versus you know, what we were eating before. Granted, it's now gluten-free, which Sarah and I wouldn't touch gluten with a 10-foot pole, but we're not exactly helping ourselves as a community if those are the types of foods that we're creating and consuming versus, you know, kind of thinking about what is the point of all of this, which is to help our guts and to be healthy. I agree. Um, and the the cricket of like the one listener left like you know we love you guys like we're not judging the foods that you eat I want I just I don't give hugs and I'm like actively hugging everybody out there because I know that they're making them sad about something that they're eating right now and I'm sorry let's let's wrap this up with um sort of like why we wanted to touch on this topic I know we covered that a bit in the introduction but in part it's because Awareness of food choices is so phenomenally important in order to really be able to understand how food is interacting with our bodies. And around this time of year, we see a lot of people, you know, take on paleo challenges, take on paleos and New Year's resolution. And what's happening now in the community is, you know, people are trying paleo and not feeling good on it. And I think. It would, it's a travesty when people are trying paleo, but it's this, you know, paleo full of these types of foods that we've just been talking about for an hour um, and, and not feeling good on it. But we can sort of say, well, you know, of course, if you're eating, you know, trading your gluten for a ton of psyllium husk and guar gum, that's probably not going to help your digestion any. Um, and so part of addressing this topic is, just really, I, I think we really want people to um, be very intentional with their food choices. And whether you choose to keep a food journal, whether you're just going to start reading labels more, um, whether you're going to try and focus more on just more of like a meat, vegetables, fruit, seafood type um, approach and, and let the other things be the occasional things. Um, you know, there's a lot of different ways that you can take this inf- information and um, and have it, you know, uh, improve your your intentions with food. But I think that if we want the paleo movement to continue to grow and we want people to really find health, I mean, that is the whole reason for doing everything that we do is to improve public health. Then we need to improve the awareness about where these lines are. And that doesn't mean that you can't cross them sometimes, but really understanding how those ingredients work for you, how, you know, what dose, you know, frequency, um, you know, what are the what are the nuances of how that works for you is really important for being able to hone in on that magic place between what you need for your body to thrive and what your body tolerates. And that is, that is the goal. So what we're, we're hoping is, um, not, not to throw any fellow bloggers or cookbook authors under the bus, um, and not to, to 
guilt people out of, you know, their favorite treats, but to just really encourage awareness and, and intention with food choices so that uh, we can continue to make this a movement of achieving health. Thanks for saving me there. Uh, did you, not, you didn't want to add anything to that? I'm just afraid I'm going to mess it up. <laughs> All right. Well, in that case, why don't we wrap it up? Um, I am going to be in Phoenix, uh, Arizona, doing a book signing on Saturday this weekend and in Vegas on Sunday. So if you're listening to this Thursday or Friday and you live in one of those two cities, hop onto my website um, at www.thepaleymom.com forward slash events and get all the details um, and come and meet me. I'm not I'm, – I'm doing two weekends of travel um, this month. I'm doing another weekend at the end of the month where I'm going to be hitting Austin and Houston. And then that's it for non, non-conference travel for me um, probably until my next book comes out in November. So if you live close by, I encourage you to, to come. I do give hugs. They're not mandatory, but I, I – I, do offer them. I would say they're ninety percent mandatory. I mean, once she's got her arms open in front of you, uh, there may be a little pressure to hug me, <laughs> but you do not have to hug me, and I do respect people's personal boundaries. Um, but I'm doing all these book signings with Elena Haber, who is awesome. So even if you've come out to meet me before, come out and meet Elena because she is adorable and enthusiastic and lovely. Um, I second that motion. Yes. And we will uh, sign your books um, and chat with you and answer questions and generally and hug. Yeah. So, I mean, it'll be it'll be hug fest is what it'll be, but it'll be fun. So um, please, this weekend is Phoenix and Vegas. The end of the month is Austin and Houston. Um, So I hope to to see you there. I'm going to be here. You're going to be there. You're not, not going to come out to Vegas and hang out with me. It's tempting. It's tempting. Can you just wait? Can you just even? Do you have a mental picture of me in Vegas? <laughs> You're going to be in the um, suburbs. You're not going to be in Vegas. <laughs> I'm going to be like, what is this place? Where am I? Uh, I hope you take so many photos. All right. Well, thank you for tuning in, everyone. Those of you who hung around, I sincerely apologize if we've just, you know shut the coffin on some of your favorite foods. I'm Sarah and I both said it's not that we are perfectionists or don't ever eat these things. It's that we just want everyone to be mindful of what are the true health promoting foods of paleo. And we hope that you can keep that in mind as you move forward or as your friends start paleo and are asking you questions. And as new cookbooks come out and you're seeing ingredients that you've never seen before, just be thoughtful and look into those things. Um, But thank you for tuning in. It's uh, wonderful to speak with you all, as always. And it was a rare opportunity that I gave you a virtual hug. So I hope you you have those feels that I feel for you. (laughs) It is. We should. We should. I appreciate it. (laughs) All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Paleo View. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. You can also support us by shopping for our favorite paleo products on the sidebars of our individual websites or by donating through PayPal. Hello. Hey, can you hold on a second? I have to capture my cat. Whoa. In a cage? <sighs> Are you feeling better? Yeah. 
I've eaten two solid meals today, and they've stayed in, so that's super exciting. That is very exciting. Um, so yeah, you're done now. You don't have any more bad things. I'm just, I'm declaring that. For Thank you. I appreciate, I appreciate that you've put that out into the universe and that now it can be official. It is absolutely official. You're done now and it's all good things. It's all, it's all the snowball of good now. Sweet. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.